Let's do a Bible quiz. Bible quiz, just see how you're doing this morning in this sense. Is this a direct quote found in the Bible? That is a statement that's almost word for word. I know there'll be a little bit of translation. But is this found in the Bible? Cleanliness is next to godliness. Oh, man, you're adamant about that. Okay, you're right. Okay, what about this one? God helps those who help themselves. You sure? Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's not there. How about this one? Spare the rod, spoil the child. Ben Franklin coined the phrase. It's not in Scripture. The, the, the principle is there, but not the phrase. Okay. What about this one? Out of the mouth of babes. Yeah. No. That one is. That one is. Okay. Psalms 8, chapter two, or Psalms 8, verse 2. What about this one? House divided against itself shall not stand. Yeah, Jesus did state, state that comment, okay, in Matthew 12, when he's talking about his accusations against him. Uh, money is the root of all evil. The love of money in the scriptures. Yeah, good. You're doing well. Verily, verily, God wants you to be happy. No, no, that's not there. It's not there. The Lord works in mysterious ways. The phrase is not in the scriptures, no. Okay. Is the truth in the scriptures? Yeah, okay. Okay, here's one for you. Charity begins at home. Yeah, the phrase is not there. Thought is, but the phrase isn't. A fool and his money, be careful, a fool and his money shall soon be parted. Nope, it's not there. Love the sinner, but hate the sin. Nope. Thought is, thought is there, but not this phrase. If the blind lead the blind, they shall both fall into a ditch. <laughs> Jesus said it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Here we go. Uh, eat, drink, and be merry. <laughs> it is in scriptures, okay? It's there. Okay. But there's a phrase missing. <laughs> yeah, okay, this phrase. Be careful, be cautious, yeah. Be moderate in all things. No, 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 not there. This too shall pass. Some of you are really cautious now, okay? <laughs> it's like you're scared to say anything, okay? It really is not. Um, but there's 400 times it says it came to pass. And so many think, well, that's there. It's not. The eye is the window to the soul. Now you're really overly cautious. Nobody's saying it. What do you think? No. Okay. It's not there. Be it far from me. Did you get everyone right so far? You don't know? Well, you're wrong on this one, okay? Okay, this one is in scriptures, okay? Shows up at least four times. And it goes with another phrase that shows up 24 times. It is the strongest ways in the original language, both in the Greek and the Hebrew, to say, you know, don't 
Get it out of my life. I want to take just a few weeks, just do a weird study that typically is not what we do, but just look at a number of these God forbids in scriptures. I want you to join with me in the one that's found in the oldest book of the Bible, Job. If you're unfamiliar where it's at, shame on you. We just spent seven months in here. Okay, Book of Job, chapter 27. Some of you will remember this. It, it was a phrase that came up in Job. And, it's the, and again, Job is probably in the very early period of time written be, before, around the time of Abraham. So it's considered the oldest written book in the Bible. And Job is going through an experience that Job, many of you remember, that Job makes the statement, God forbid, in verse 5 of chapter 27, God forbid that I should justify you till I die. I will not remove mine integrity from me. In the setting that this happens, Job has been suffering a lot. We all know this, who have been here at any length of time over the last few months since May. Job is in pain, in agony. His three friends came to comfort him. And they repeatedly have been saying to him, the reason you're suffering is you've done something bad. You've got some secret sin in your life. And so they keep on saying, Job, you've got to repent. You've got to repent. You've got to repent. Repent. Job, you got to repent. And they have already said this multiple times. And they are insisting that he is wrong. Job is in this text insisting, I have not some secret sin in my life. I haven't done wrong. I haven't denied the Lord. And I am not going to go along with what you're saying. And the way he phrases it is really, really emphatic. Where, where he makes that comment where he says, God forbid that I'm going to agree with you. God forbid that I'm going to go along with you and justify, make you think that what you say is good and is all right. And so he refuses. He is adamant saying, I refuse to go along with you. I refuse to agree with you. I refuse to let you feel justified in what you're saying, even though he's outnumbered by the people that are there. Even though they have repeatedly put the pressure on him now for multiple times in speeches, even though he is physically weak, he is tired, he is discouraged, he is disappointed, even though here he is, he is in a weakened condition, he says, I will not be persuaded by you. God forbid, God forbid that I go along with doing or saying something that you guys are saying that's wrong. He refused to go along with them. Let me put it in, in terms like, like we could apply it today. Like Job, you and I should not risk our reputation. We should, God forbid that you would risk your reputation by giving in to the pressures of others around you. God forbid that you would give in to say, I'm going to agree with what you're saying, even though I think it's wrong, I'm going to go along with you. I'm, I'm going, God forbid that I would agree to do something that you're suggesting I do, even though I know it's wrong. God forbid that I would risk my reputation. That's a pretty strong point that Job is making. Job is saying at this point to friends who could be saying, look at all we've done for you. Look at how we've shown you all these facts. But he says, God forbid, God forbid. Let, let's see if we can draw application. God forbid that you would risk your reputation to disregard some campus rule, some idea, and violate it because you think it's dumb or some others have th think it's dumb, and you get yourself into great trouble. God forbid that all of a sudden you get the pressure upon you that says it's okay to be sexually promiscuous. That premarital sex is okay. That it's okay to, to do all kinds of you know, sexting and different things like that on the internet. God forbid that you would agree with those who are putting the pressure on you to violate the moral code of God's word. God forbid that you would all of a sudden be persuaded by co-workers 
that it's okay for you to steal from the employer because they don't pay you enough. They owe you so much more. God forbid that you would try to rip off the store by taking back an item and then lying about that item so you could get more. It's, it's like the time we were here at the church. We were in, looking for a vacuum cleaner. So we went over to Boscov's to pick up the vacuum cleaner and we thought it was kind of heavy, the new cleaner for janitor work. We brought it back or opened it up and it's a box of rocks. Somebody had returned the vacuum cleaner and had lied about it and had it all taped up and they got the vacuum cleaner and the discount or the refund by lying and returning a box of rocks. God forbid that any of you would ever think of doing something like that. God forbid that you would think it's okay to take something, to shoplift something from a store, and you would risk your entire reputation on that, to get a five-and-dime item because somebody has dared you. Somebody has told you it's okay to do that. God forbid that you would say, hey, your friends are giving you the pressure and saying, let's go out and let's get drunk and let's carouse. And you'd say, yeah, it's okay, according to scriptures, that I can go and get drunk. No, it's not. No, it's drunk. It doesn't say that. God forbid that you would fall into the pressure of peers and start gossiping and start criticizing somebody who's a friend in the group. But they tell you it's okay to do it to talk behind their back. God forbid that you would be an individual that can get involved with it. God forbid that any of you would say, because my friends have told me it's okay, and at work they say it's okay to lie to the insurance company to make a false claim, or to, you know, I got a dent in a real accident, so I'm going to include all these other dents and all these other works that didn't come from that accident, but my friends told me it's okay to do. God forbid you'd go along with that and be unethical in that regard. God forbid that somebody tells you you can cheat on your taxes and you would agree with that. God forbid that we would ruin our reputation, risk our reputation, that all of a sudden we would put something out there. God forbid that, some, that, that you would listen to some friend, some family member, some coworker that tells you, it's okay. You can, you know, you can trade, you've been married 40 years, trade her in for 220s. Yeah. That's silly comments that people make all the time. God forbid that you would agree with that. That you would risk your reputation by agreeing to do something that you know God's word says is wrong. God forbid. That's a good God forbid to live by. God forbid that you would risk your reputation. Can you give you another one? Can you give me another one that's in another text? Go with me to Genesis 44. Genesis 44, it's Joseph this time. Joseph's story has a different God's for, God forbid. In Genesis 44, and I need to set up the scene and give you some historical background, so bear with me as I go through some of the story, and I'll do it rapidly and leave out some points, but probably say more than what some would consider. But jo- Joseph grows up in a family with 12, his family of 12 boys. <laughs> That's a challenge. He's grown up in this family of, actually there's 11 at the time, and so he's there, and he's become the, he's the youngest. He's his father's favorite. And so his father favors him to the point that as they get into their adolescence and adult years, dad makes him to be in charge of the others. The reason that we know that is he gives him a coat of many colors, which is indicative in that ancient world that he is given special status over the others. He has those dreams that his brothers bow down to him sometime, that his mother and father would bow down to him. And that just escalates their hatred towards him, their anger towards him, their animosity and their jealousy towards him because he's dad's favorite. He 
not only his dad exalting him, but he's also exalting himself through these dreams that he claims. And so they're angry with him. They don't like him at all. And so the brothers decide they're going to get Joseph out of their life. And remember the story that they decide they're going to kill him. They throw him in a pit. But then one of the brothers pleads then says, let's not kill him. Let's make some profit out of this. Let's sell him to some Midian traders who are traveling by. We'll sell him and we will take the money and we've got this, you know, 20 shekels between us that we can divide amongst us and we'll take his coat of many colors and we will put blood on it and we will say, dad, he got caught by a lion. We couldn't rescue him and he's, you know, he became lion bait. And so he's gone. And they do that. They sell him. He gets taken down into Egypt and he's sold as a slave while his brothers are going back home and they're telling this fabulous story, breaking their dad's heart who is just in great deep pain. Joseph ends ends up in Egypt. And you know the story well. He's in a foreign land. He's a teenager. He's all of a sudden in this situation where he's a low man on the totem pole and he gets sold to uh, one one of the military leaders. And as a result, he's in the home. But he he shows great skill and he, he arises to the top of the slaves in the home and he catches the attention of Potiphar's wife who she considers him a hunk and she proposes to him in a very risque way and he just he runs out leaving his garment and all in her hands and he runs out of the room she falsely accuses him of trying to molest her and as a result he ends up in prison For something he's not done. He's ended up in slavery for something he's not done. He's ended up in prison for something he's not done. He's innocent in all of these things. He ends up in prison. And while he's in prison, he interprets dreams for others. And he says to the one man, when you get restored to Potiphar's household, remember me. But nothing happens for a period of time goes by. He's still in prison. And eventually, Pharaoh has the dreams that are very, very upsetting to Pharaoh. And in that culture, they put a lot of stock in dreams. So he says to all the sages and wise men, please interpret. Nobody can interpret. But then that household servant remembers how Joseph interpreted his dream. And he suggests to Pharaoh, I know of, a, of somebody in jail who could interpret your dream. They, they bring him out of jail, clean him up. He comes before Pharaoh and he interprets the dream. He tells him you're going to have seven great years of fruit and fruitfulness, seven years of famine. And Pharaoh's just amazed and says, what do we do? And Joseph proceeds to advise and says, here's what I would do if I were you. And he tells him how he would go about the business. Pharaoh is so appreciative and sees such wisdom in Joseph. Joseph is elevated to the point of second in command, vice presidency of Egypt, vice Pharaoh of Egypt. He's in charge and they go through the seven years of of great plenty and he's stockpiling things and taking care of things. And then when the years of the feast and the famine come, those seven years, he's he's got all this storage that he can help the people survive. And God is just using this man who's now in his, you know, in 30s, uh, age and God's blessing him and using him and it's about that time his family is suffering the famine up in the Canaan and they realize there's they've hear, heard there's grain down in, in Egypt let's load up our animals let's go down let's take our money we'll buy some grain to get us through the famine they show up at, at Joseph's house there's two different trips that they make on the second trip that they come back Joseph had met with them the first time and never revealed who he was Joseph keeps his his identity a secret, though he recognized these are my brothers. And he said, the next time you come, you bring any family member, any of the brothers, 
And they tell him there was a brother born that, that, that was born after he was sold into slavery. And he puts it together. He says, don't you come back unless you bring your youngest brother next time. So they make the second trip. And when they come on the second trip, Joseph just, he's, he doesn't reveal himself. But there's, remember those moments that Joseph's crying? He is so moved, he has to go hide himself. But he wants to see what, what is his brothers thinking? How are they treating Benjamin, the youngest, that has replaced him? And so they, he sets the feast for him. Benjamin, he, and, and remember what he does in the feast that totally shocks these boys, these men? Do you remember? He seats them in the table. Yeah, he seats them in the order of, the fam, of who's the oldest. And they're going, how does he know who's the oldest to the youngest? And then he, for Benjamin, he gives them five times whatever, you know, five times the McDonald burgers, whatever it is. Okay. And so he's, you know, they have the feast. And then Joseph does something. And this leads to where we're, where we're in chapter 44. Joseph tells his servant, you know, put the money back in the bags, but hide it. But also take my cup and put it in Benjamin's bag, but don't let him see it. And so if you read in chapter, beginning in chapter 44, there seems like they're packing up on the night before they leave. And then early in the morning, they take off. And the passage, you look down and you read through verses, it says they've left the city, they've not gone very far, and all of a sudden Joseph says to his servant, who he, his servant knows that there's, Joseph's doing this to test his brothers. He says, now go after them. And then check their bags. And tell them that, you know, one of you stole my master's cup, golden cup. And whoever that is, is going to come back to the master's house and become a slave. So you can imagine, you know, these guys are traveling along and all of a sudden they see behind them, here comes Joseph's servant. Do you know that feeling you get when all of a sudden you're driving down the road and then you see those flashing red lights behind you? Oh, you know, some of you are laughing. You know that feeling. You know, that just like, oh, oh what did I do? So they see the flashing red lights of, of Joseph's camel, you know, servant's camel, and they pull over. And he comes out and he says to them, he says, how could you treat my master this way? He's done nothing but good to you. He's fed you. He's done graciousness to you. How could you steal from him? Look down at verse 17. This is where, in this chapter, two God forbids, this is the first one. Down verse 7, excuse me. Verse 7. They said unto the servant, Wherefore saith my Lord these words? You know, it's, it's like you say, I was speeding? I, officer, I wasn't doing anything wrong. You've never said that? So I've said that. Okay, and then... Uh, and he says, God, they say, God forbid that your servants should do according to this thing. We, we did nothing wrong. We, did not, we would never treat somebody this way. I find this really ironic. What the brothers, so emphatic. So, you know, so they say, God forbid we'd ever mistreat someone in this way. Isn't it ironic that they're taking this oath? Right? We would never steal from somebody. And you look at it and go, really? You just stole 22 years of Joseph's life. You stole from your own families, your father's joy. You stole from your own household by lying about this. Or have they changed? Have they changed? And remember, this is all a test to find out if they've changed. But, but their, their first, the very first God forbid is, we would never do this. By the way, can I suggest something? 
People can make all kinds of adamant statements that aren't true in the spirit. Yes? We can vow vows that, we, that, that aren't true. We've got to be careful. We've got to be very careful about that. It is better for you never to vow than to vow and not pay, God said. So the brothers are doing this. And what happens in this story is they find Joseph's uh, cup. They, uh, you know, they think he's the Egyptian vice pharaoh. They, still, they don't know he's his brother. They find the cup in Benjamin's bag. What is interesting, and this should be a whole other study, is the brothers' reactions. Read through the, this part of the book, or the chapter. As you look through it and do your study on later on, watch how they respond. They say in verse 9, Whomsoever of thy servants, if, the, if you find the cup, when any of your servants be found, let him die. None, we're, we are so innocent, we, we stake our life on it. And we all will be the, the servants to, the, to your master. And he said, now also let it be according to yours, but let it be found if with that one. That one will be, my, be the servant. You shall be blameless. Then they speedily took down every man his sack. Why are they going so rapidly? They're afraid, but what are they confident in? That they're innocent. And so they speedily take down every man his sack to the ground, and they open every man. They have nothing to hide, they think. So all those little details are really important to give you the sense of what's going on here. And uh, they take it down. He searched and began at the oldest and went to the youngest and found the cup. Watch the response. Verse 13. The brothers, what do they do? First thing they do when they find out Benjamin's caught. They rent their clothes, okay? So they feel for Benjamin. Is that different than what they did with Joseph 22 years ago? Yeah, okay, so they feel for Benjamin. They're, they're relating to the suffering. And they loaded up the donkeys, the asses, every one of them, and they returned to the city. That's different than what they did to Joseph. Remember, they deserted Joseph 22 years before. This time, they accompany him back to his bondage, to his slavery. Then they, what else do they do? They plead their brother's cause. He goes down and we read that, you know, Joseph meets them, verse 15. What did you do? What have you done? Don't you realize I can tell these things? I know these things. He's playing into their, what they think about Joseph, that he has this special insight into setting them up at the table and all those little details because he hasn't revealed himself. And so they take time. You know, that they plead the case. In fact, Judah speaks up and says, What shall we say unto you? What shall we speak? How shall we? By the way, I picture this. Now, this may not be the way, but do you picture the other brothers as they're headed back to Egypt punching Benjamin and saying, What'd you do? Do you get that impression that they're saying, Really? Really? And he goes, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And they're, you know, and so they're headed back. But now in verse 16, Joseph speaks up. They don't know it's him. They don't know it's their youngest brother that's got him in a trap. What shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? God hath found out what? God found out the iniquity of the servants. What are they referring to? Okay. They have a sense of guilt of what they've done years before. They've got this sense of guilt. God found us out. In this, in this setting. So, and then you read from the bottom of the passage. Actually, I think that should be from about verse 23 on. But look at the very end. Here's what, here's what Judah pleads. Now, therefore, I pray, verse 33, I pray you, let my servant abide, in, let thy servant, me, abide instead of the lad, as bondman to, your, to you, Lord. Let the lad go up with his brethren. 
For how shall I go up to my father and this boy be not with me? Lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come upon my father. Now, Judah and the others are concerned about whose feelings? Their fathers. They didn't care 22 years ago. So to, from Joseph's perspective, have they changed? Oh, there's all these indications that there is a change that's going on in their spirit. What strikes me is Joseph. In verse 17, Joseph, it is suggested, punish, just, you know, punish all of us. Punish all of us. You know, do whatever you want with all of us. You know, wipe us all out. Joseph says, God forbid. God forbid that I would punish all of you. Think when, from Joseph's perspective how impacting this is. From Joseph's perspective, he would not use his authority against those who hurt him. He would not be vindictive towards his brothers. From his point of view, even though they had intended to kill him, I'm not taking your life. Even though they had deserted him in the past and he ended up in slavery, he is not going to take advantage of the situation and punish them. He lost 22 years of his life because of what they did with his family, with his father. He suffered as a slave himself, but he's not going to make them slaves. He is an individual who was a prisoner for an extended period of time, several years. He is not going to put them in prison. Even though he has the power to retaliate, he doesn't. Can I make an observation about his God forbid? He refused to be vindictive. In fact, he is not vindictive. He is forgiving towards his brother. In the next few verses, read in the next chapter. He all of a sudden says, guys, it's me, it's Joseph. And then he showers blessings upon him. And he forgives them for what they have done. Here's my point. God forbid we would ever ruin relationships by going after others who hurt us. God forbid we'd ever ruin relationships by withholding forgiveness. Now, they may not accept it, but God forbid you'd ever withhold forgiveness. God forbid you ever in anger would go after somebody who has hurt you or your family. God forbid. God forbid. There's, there's a story that I was reading about. One pastor, he came and was walking in a park. And he said he saw this little boy, and this little boy was sitting by this area on the ground next to a bench, and he was wiggling and squirming all over. And he said to the little boy, what are you doing? You're in great pain. You're in great. Can I help you? He says, no, but this bee underneath me stung me, and I'm hurting him more than he hurt me. No, it doesn't work that way. But some of us do that. Some of us say, we're going to get after that person who spoke some unkind words to me. That relative who gave me the chintziest Christmas gift, I am going to hold a grudge against them. That parent who showed favoritism towards others, I am going to be bitter with them. That bitterness, that anger, that vindictiveness hurts you more than it hurts anybody else. The Word of God challenges us that what you and I need to do is we need to make sure we are not harboring an anger towards somebody who's hurt us in the past. We need to remember that, that we are not to withhold forgiveness for a family member or friend or relative who has sought forgiveness. We are not to talk about those who hurt us in a vindictive, angry way. We are not supposed to reach out and try to ruin the reputation of others who have said things badly about us. We're not to be doing it. In fact, 
Romans chapter 12 in the New Testament highlights this truth. And he spends several verses in Romans 12 after talking about you've been saved, you've been forgiven, you have the Spirit of God within you, God keeps you saved, here's what God wants you to do for service, that's Romans 12. And in that text he makes this comment where he says, recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Don't lie about somebody else. Don't cheat somebody else. If it be possible, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. He goes on. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. Rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine and mine alone, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing you shall heap coals of fire upon his head. And he goes, he says, be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. This is what we're to be living in 2020. We are to be individuals who would say, God forbid I would ruin relationships by being angry and hanging on to it or withholding forgiveness. God forbid, God forbid you would risk your reputation by going along with something that's wrong. God forbid that you would ruin relationships by harboring and holding on to anger. Can I give you the last one you want to look at today? Joshua 24. Joshua 24. Let's move ahead in history. Let's jump ahead with the instances that in this story, the Jews have gone down after Joseph. They went down into Egypt. They lived there for 400 years. They were in bondage for most of that time. Moses comes along. He leads them out of that bondage. And Moses gets them to the Red Sea. They cross the Red Sea. They get into the promised land. And under Joshua, they go through the promised land and they conquer it. They break the backbone of all the major armies in that area. We are at the end of that 40 years that Joshua has led them in conquest. It's the end of Joshua's life. Joshua 24, he is about 100, 110 years old. And Joshua is saying to them, I'm out of here. You have your territory. You still have to get rid of the little specks of the Canaanites here. But as a whole, their, their alliance is broken. You each tribe, you take care of it themselves. That's the book of Judges. And so he reminds them as he gathers them together and gives his farewell address. It's not at Washington, D.C., but it's at Shechem, their capital city at the time. And when he speaks to them, he reminds them that you made a covenant with God 40 years ago when you were crossing the Red Sea at that time at Mount Sinai. You made a covenant, and you said you would serve the Lord. And so far for these 40 years, you've been following and doing it. But I want to challenge you that you don't forget your covenant. That you don't forget that you promised God that since he delivered you, since he's provided for you, you are going to serve him. And now that he's given you homes and and crops that are already built and already planted and you've taken over this territory, don't become fat and sassy. You follow through. Okay, you're not not living manna day by day anymore. You're not not at the the mercies of God for a daily providing. He's provided lots of things. Now you have abundance. And isn't it true? In abundance, we can become forgetful. And so he says, don't become forgetful. And he starts reminding them of all the blessings that the Lord has done. In the first 13 verses, as you gloss through the first 13, Joshua is speaking, and what he does, and he says, okay, you know, here's the word of the Lord. And he says 18 times, I, 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 as if God is speaking. God is telling them, this is what I've done for you. This is what I've done for you. And God rehearses how he has blessed them. And he talks about how he blessed with Abraham and Moses, the Red Sea miracle, the conquest of Canaan, and given them these houses and lands. 
that they don't even have to work for, that are already ready to be harvested. Then Joshua has a conversation with them. And if you want to break down the, the last few verses, it's an interesting back and forth conversation. Joshua says to them in verse 14, he says, Now therefore, because of God's blessings upon your life, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods of your fathers served on the other side of the flood, and in Egypt, serve the Lord. If it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether it be the gods that your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the other side of the river when you were back in, or the other side of the Red Sea back in Egypt, or the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you now dwell. But as for me and my house, this is that classic verse you want on your wall. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people respond. And you have their first response. The people answered and said, and what words do they use? If you're awake, verse 16. God forbid. God forbid that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. And so they are, they're adamant. God forbid that we would ever leave the Lord God Almighty. Next, follow the next few verses just for the sake. We'll get back to this one. Joshua responds and he says... For, they, they respond and, and uh, Joshua responds, verse 19. You cannot serve the Lord... For he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. Now this is, what, why did Joshua say it this way? Many of the commentators and scholars say that Joshua is saying to them, you don't really mean this. You are saying this on a Sunday, but you're not going to do it on a Monday. You're really not going to follow through because some of you are still hanging on to your idols. I know that, that you haven't really totally separated. So you can't do this. You can't do this in a whim. You can't do this with just, you know, something you're going to say or just showing up at the tabernacle. You know, he says, you're not going to be able to do it. And the people respond, if you jump down a little bit further, the people respond and they said to Joshua, no, nay, in the King James, but we will serve the Lord God. And then Joshua talks again. And Joshua has a third challenge that he gives them. And we read it in verse 22, where Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourself, that you have chosen to serve him, and their response, we are witnesses. We'll, we'll you, know, you know, cross our heart, you know, that idea, cross our heart and hope to die. We put ourselves on the line. We really, really, really mean this. This is really true of us. And then Joshua gives them another challenge. Now, therefore, if you really mean it, what does he say in verse 23? Put away the strange gods which are among you and focus your heart, incline your heart unto the Lord God. And then the people respond, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice will we obey. And Joshua then makes a covenant. He writes it down in a memorial that you people promised this. All that story to say this, the people are adamant. The people are absolutely determined. And they're saying, this isn't something that we're just doing because it's, you know, it's the flow of the emotions. We mean this. We absolutely mean this. We are going to say, God forbid we'd ever run from our responsibilities to serve God. God forbid we'd ever run from our responsibilities to serve the Lord our God. In, in their mind, they say it 13 times. In these few verses, serve the Lord, serve the Lord, serve the Lord, serve the Lord. That they are determined. Joshua challenges them, they respond. Joshua says, serve the Lord, serve the Lord. This is the predominant thought. And they say, we're going to serve the Lord. Look at verse 17. God forbid that we would, not, that we would stop serving the Lord. God forbid give up our responsibilities. For the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up, our, up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, which he did great signs in our sight. God has done so much for us. Us, God forbid we'd ever, we'd ever run from serving him. God forbid. 
God forbid we do that. Their method of service is very clear in verse 23. Get rid of the idols. Put off the things that compete with God in your life. Those were the little statues. But more importantly were the idols of their heart. Today we may not have those little statues, but we might have idols like money. We might have bank accounts. We might have idols of addiction. We might have idols of self-pleasure. Get get rid of those idols. And what you need to do is focus your fellowship on the Lord. Get really close to the Lord. Get in the Word of God. Get into praying to Him and focus on that. So the point is this. The point is for you and me that in the New Testament we are reminded by the apostles who came in and they ministered to a certain area. They wrote them back later and they would say, don't forget your service for the Lord. We read that multiple times. Timothy, Paul writes to him, he says, take heed unto yourself and unto your teachings. Continue in them. Don't forsake your responsibilities of serving the Lord, Timothy. And Timothy's a pastor at this time. Does a pastor need to be reminded, don't don't run from responsibilities? Yes. He, he writes when, Paul writes to the Philippians, these things which you have both learned, received and heard of me, keep on doing. Don't stop just because I'm out of there. We read it where we find writing to the book of the people in Rome. He says, be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Just keep on, keep on. We read where Jesus made this comment. If anyone serves me, he must keep on following me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, the the Lord will honor him. Don't quit serving me. This is that that summation of the Corinthian letter. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain. So you and I, we look at it and say, okay, this is true. That we are not supposed to forsake our responsibilities of serving the Lord. How does that serving look? How does that look in 2020? Well, Jesus gave us an idea. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same will be fruitful. And he goes on, without me you can do nothing. What's he saying there? If we are going to serve the Lord, being fruitful in our lives, we have to have a close walk with Jesus Christ. We need to abide in him. We need to do what they said, draw near to the Lord. Are you close to the Lord? Are you walking close to the Lord at this point? The holidays were great. You had lots of fellowship with family and friends. What about your fellowship with Christ? What about your closeness with him? See, this idea of fruitfulness and service and fellowship are inseparable. You will not be fruitful unless you are abiding in Christ. You will not be serving unless you are really, really intimate with Christ in your, in your walk with him on a daily basis. That's what Joshua says to the people and warns them. And they say, God forbid that I would ever give it up. God forbid that you and I would run from our responsibilities to serve the Lord. God forbid that you would not follow through on your vow that you made at baptism. When you got baptized, you publicly said, I die to myself and I will walk in newness of life. I'm going to serve the Lord. God forbid that you made that commitment and now you're not serving the Lord. God forbid that you would run from your responsibility to worship. That when, you know, when the Vikings are playing in the Super Bowl, <laughs> and there's good things. But God forbid, forgive, forbid that we would forsake the responsibility of worship when it says, don't do it. God forbid that you would forsake your responsibility to be praying. 
for your family, for your kids, for your spouse. God forbid that, God forbid that, you, that you failed to do that this week. God forbid that you would fail to do it this coming week. When you and I are told to have that spirit of prayer on a regular basis, God forbid that you would run from your responsibility to share the gospel with others. And you say, well, that's somebody else's job. No, that's your job if you're born again. You're supposed to be sharing the word. God forbid that you would refuse to give out tracts. That you would keep quiet when God is wanting you to share the gospel with your family and friends. God forbid that you would ever run from your responsibilities when it comes to your family. Towards your spouse to submit, to revere him. To love her. To esteem her. To train up your children in the way that they should go. To obeying your parents with respect. God forbid that you would run from that responsibility. God forbid that you would not personally contribute to the growth of others and to the growth of this body. God forbid that you would just come and take and take and never give to the body that God has put you in, the church body. When we are commanded by Scripture to be contributing, to be helping, to be ministering, but God forbid you'd come and just sit on Sunday morning and then walk out and be done. God forbid. God forbid that you and I would ever risk the reputation that we would ever ruin relationships, that we would run from our responsibility after all he's done for us. And think about it. He's done a lot. You know what Jesus Christ has done? He has given us. We sang about it. And I think that while we sang that third to fourth verse of that you know, you know, marvelous Savior, you know, the grace of Christ, that we weren't thinking about the words. He has given us forgiveness. He has given us his love. And we hear it so much, we just basically take it for granted. Listen, friend, if you don't understand what I'm talking about, Jesus Christ has died for us. He has given his life on the cross, and he says, whosoever shall call upon him and, and say, Jesus, I understand that your sacrifice was necessary for my forgiveness because I'm a sinner. You took my sin and my punishment on the cross and now you give to me the offer because you bought that gift, that free gift. You bought it. You are offering it to me. All I need to do is repent of my sins and call upon you to be my Savior, my Lord. That's what Christ has done for us. And then after we become his child by being born again, then he gives us so much more, the spirit within us, the wisdom to understand the scriptures, a family of God, just so many more blessings. He has been so gracious. Now, if you're here this morning and you've never accepted that free gift, you ought to. Don't do what I read about a lawyer that he did. He has some of his clients. There was a lawyer who had 17 different clients that still owed him a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And he read and was challenged as he was reading his Bible to show an act of forgiveness. So he decided that those 17 clients who he knew, he knew they could afford to pay him, but they were choosing not to. For some reason, he chose to write them each a letter put it in certified mail, and the letter was going to say, explain, I've been challenged from Scripture to do something more for Christ. I'm going to forgive you of all your debt. He sent off these 17 letters. He said what was amazing about these letters of offer of forgiveness, one of them came back that the people had moved. The other 16 came back, they refused to sign for the letter. Because they probably assumed, you know, you know, I'm garnishing your wages or something like that. 
And there was an offer of forgiveness that they refused. What's worse than that would be for you to sit here, hear about Jesus offering you forgiveness of all your sins, and you refusing to say, put my name on that account. After all he's done for you, you want to serve him. You want to protect his reputation and yours. You want to protect relationships. You want to serve the Lord. But in this society, people are so unthankful. I guess we can go back. It's not just us. You know, 160 years ago, or, yeah, 160, yeah, 160 years ago when that crash on Lake Michigan between these two ships, people were in the waters and they were cold, frigid waters. So in that September day, Edwin Spencer decided that he would go out, wade out there and swim out a bit and help rescue some of these people in the waters. For six hours, he swam back and forth and rescued 17 different people from certain drowning that were in the waters from these wrecks. As a result, his health is broken, and within months after that, he passed away. Do you realize that those 17 people that he rescued, do you realize how many sent a note or came to his funeral? None. None. President Bush, and think what you want of his politics, this is back in Thanksgiving a number of years ago. He decided to go to the Middle East on Thanksgiving morning and help serve the troops. The reason that he gave was, he says, I was thinking about all the sacrifice they've made for me, and I just wanted to go there quickly and to spend the day and to show them that they aren't forgotten and they're appreciated. So he went there and did it. And I know some might think, oh, he did it for publicity. The weird part of it is his family was waiting for him down at his Texas ranch. He never told him he was going. And so they were wondering what happened to him at Thanksgiving. You know, sometimes when we say thank you and serve the Lord, we don't have to broadcast it. We don't have to publicize it. We just serve the Lord. Sometimes when we say I want to be faithful to the Lord, it doesn't have to be put out for everybody. We just do it. What are you going to do for the Lord? Are you going to run from the responsibility of serving or embrace it this year? God forbid you'd run. God forbid you'd ruin relationships. God forbid you'd risk your reputation.